Uh, morning, everyone. And thank you, Nigel, and everyone who's taken part. Uh, as a pastor, I think that's what I am. As a pastor, I have the, the privilege and the pleasure of uh, taking part uh, in weddings on a relatively regular basis. And so this coming Saturday, Saturday the 21st of October, Shauna and Jeffrey are getting married at Windsor, and, and I'll be officiating. And one of the key conversations that takes place with every couple as we prepare for the church service regards the wording that will be used in the vows, which are clearly a kind of core and central part of the entire day. Some of you will know where I'm going with this. But the question is, are we going to use the traditional form of words? And specifically, is the wife-to-be going to include the promise to love honor, and obey her husband. And it's a phrase, it's the phrase, which often causes a lot of discussion. And if we do decide to use it, it also provokes a certain and increasing reaction on the day of a wedding, as people and as friends and as family nudge each other at that point and whisper, she said obey. I will never do that. I will never say that. Why is that still in there? So the question is, should it be? Should it still be in there? Does it need to disappear? Or is it better to say to love, to honor, and to cherish, which is how some versions now read? Or does it need, in fact, to be changed to reflect a more biblical form of words. Now, some of you are thinking, hang on a minute, I thought obey was a biblical word. Well, maybe, but maybe not in this context. If you, uh, if you, some people are laughing. If you, (laughs) I'm getting into trouble. If you have a Bible, could you please turn with me to Ephesians 5? And we're going to pick up from where we left off last week. So do you want to, as we often do here at Windsor, would you please stand for the public reading of God's words? To say, we're just picking up from where we left off last week. Ephesians 5 verse 22, wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is its himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish." In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Grab a seat. 
Wives, submit to your husbands. Is that the fire alarm? Do we need to evacuate? No. Uh, I'm sure I've heard something. Before, before we get into this, let me quickly remind us where we have been recently and, and where what we have just read fits in because it's really important we get this. Our, our new identity, our true ID as Christians has been clarified and confirmed by the Apostle Paul in the first three chapters of this letter. And so we have been celebrating the fact that we are, and here's our identity list, we are chosen, we are saved, we are redeemed, we are forgiven, we are seated with Christ, we are raised up with Christ. We are God's workmanship, and it's all there. And those who have been following this series know that this is where we have been. And then in chapter four, this is all chapters one, two, and three. In chapter four, as we get into the kind of second half of this letter, Paul then urges Christians to live in a manner, to walk in a manner that's worthy of your calling, that is worthy of your new and true identity. And in chapters four, and chapter five, and chapter six, Paul then gets practical and he explains what is involved and what this looks like. And so he tells Christians what to do and what not to do, or rather he tells them what to wear, what to put on, and what not to wear, what they must take off. Not because they must in order to be accepted or to be children of God, as we thought about a couple of weeks ago, but he tells them to do this because they are accepted and are children of God. And that's really important that we get that. And therefore, Paul says, listen, God wants you to live like this because you belong to him. He wants and he knows what is best for you. So here is how to live. Here's what you need to take off. Here's what you need to put on. And so here are the two lists. This is not an exhaustive list. There are more than these. But here are the two lists that we have identified to date. Some of the things we need to take off like lying and unwholesome talk and bitterness and sexual immorality. Here's some of the things we need to put on, like speaking the truth. And it's all there. And then last week, we added one more thing to the left-hand side and four more things with three, four more things to the right-hand side. And so he said, listen, don't get drunk. And on the other side, do be filled with the Holy Spirit. Do sing your hearts out. Do be thankful and do submit to one another. Okay, so that, that's the kind of background. And as we read on, as we just did a moment ago, Paul's advice on how to live in light of your true ID, it continues. This is not a standalone text that we're looking at this morning. It continues. It's part of the whole. And so because life at home in Christian households is so important and crucial in Christian discipleship, he speaks into various relationships in that context. And so Paul now addresses wives and husbands. He addresses kids and parents. He addresses slaves and masters. And this morning, we're going to stick with wives and husbands. Where verses 22 to 33 provide the most detailed teaching on Christian marriage that's found in Scripture. 47 words to wives, 143 to husbands. Says something in itself. But you know something, this isn't easy. It's not easy for lots of reasons. Few commands in the Bible create as many problems for the modern church or a modern mindset as, as these, or at least the first of these do, you know, the ones that are addressed to wives. The words that are used jar. 
They, they stir up something, don't they? Let's be honest about this. Words like, let me get, words like submit and head are two cases in point. And because of certain assumptions and political correctness or culturally determined images and sensitivities and stereotypes, we react against these words. We're nervous. I'm nervous. We're nervous. We're nervous about this teaching, this text, these instructions. But you know, despite that, despite the problems and the negative reactions, we can't cut and run. I'm sure I hear an alarm. We can't skip it. We can't dilute it. We can't duck it. I've got to teach it as it is. So here we go. So let's look at this together. Smile at me, will you, please? Now remember, and this is really important as we start this, and if you hear nothing else, hear this. This is a calling. This is a calling. What is written to wives and husbands here is still part of what it means to lead a life worthy of your calling. This is a call. That idea of what are you called to in life, what is your calling in life, I've often shared that I struggle with that whole idea, that whole concept. People have often said to me, David, tell us about your call to being a pastor. I'm never quite sure how to respond to people who ask that question. But you know the one calling I am really sure about based on this is what it says here about me and my relationship with Glenn. That's Glennis. Just for anybody wondering. Sorry, just in case there's any visitors in and that adds to that. <laughs> yeah, or someone's listening online or something. Right. So, yeah, to my wife. <laughs> to my wife. This is about calling. So let's unpack it. Household codes. Household codes, codes were common in, in Paul's day. And they were, as someone has commented, they were kind of current, common currency in that culture at that time to discuss relationships within the household, given that the household was a major building block of Roman society. It still is a major building block. And so for Paul to kind of include and to speak into and to write about or offer instructions around family relationships, that is not surprising in the least. But without going into a huge amount of detail, it is absolutely vital for us to know and appreciate and realize that Paul's remarks, especially to wives and husbands, were counter to every cultural pattern represented in that society. His, his vision, his biblical vision for marriage was not some concession to any cultural pattern, but substantially challenged every cultural pattern. Especially given that his plan is, and this, if you like, is the big headline, his plan for marriage is rooted in the creation design, which is why in verse 31 that we read together, he quotes Genesis 2, verse 24. His plan for marriage, Paul's plan for marriage, is rooted in the creation design, and it is profoundly informed by the relationship that Christ has with his church, which screams at us from this text. 
This is countercultural, what Paul writes here. In addition, the fact that he addressed all parties as part of this household code, wives and husbands, kids and parents, slaves and masters, that was countercultural. Because in that context, only the male householder was ever addressed by the household codes. Not in this one. And in addition, the fact that Paul addresses wives first and kids first and slaves first is also extraordinary. Now, I realize that in terms of our culture, that doesn't register, that doesn't even matter. But it's vital that we have an understanding of the radical nature of Paul's advice in its first century context. But there's even more to this code than that. And this is where I want to kind of start because, and I know this is a phrase I've used and I use a number of times, and it kind of rolls off the tongue easily, maybe too easily. But please hear me on this as we dig in. It is all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. The scope of Paul's teaching in this text about Jesus and about Christ is astonishing. And you see, if we miss this, we miss the point, and we only end up getting the instructions and the teaching about husband and wife relationships completely out of sync. Paul reveals so much in these verses about the past, present, and future work of Christ. He builds on a lot of what he's already said and written in this letter. But in these verses, Ephesians 5, 22 to 33, we read, for example, that Christ loves us, that he sacrificed himself for us, that he sanctifies us, that he makes us his own, that he will one day present us to himself at the end of time. It's all in there. It's all taught. It's all stressed. And you see, if you don't notice that, if you don't get that alongside and interwoven into the teaching of marriage and the relationship between a husband and wife, if you don't get that, if you don't see it's all about Jesus, then you are beat. And all you'll end up doing is shrinking the text and reducing discussions to other things. It's all about Jesus, the center, the core. Now, this may seem like a, a strange place to start for some people as we look at this, but the intensive teaching about Jesus in this passage, which is all about the role of a relationship between a husband and wife, that just underlines how important it is to look at Christ and to his relationship to the church and how that is a model for healthy Christian marriages. It's all about Jesus. He's the starting point. And so in these verses that we read together, as I say, we're, we're reminded that he was motivated. Look at verse 25. We're reminded that he was motivated by love, that he gave himself, that he sacrificed himself to save us. It also says in there, he is our savior. He's our rescuer. Verse 26, Jesus sanctifies us. What does that mean? Jesus sets us apart for himself. Verse 29, Jesus nourishes and cares for us, cherishes us, feeds us. He unites us together as members of his body. And his ultimate goal, as I say, verse 27, is that he wants to present us, his church, his body, his bride, himself whenever he returns. 
It's all in there. It's all embedded in this teaching about husbands and wives and their roles and relationships. But unless we come to this text, unless we approach the moral exhortation to various members of the Christian household through the lens of Jesus, we will end up misunderstanding this teaching and getting distracted and getting upset and becoming culturally conditioned and culturally squeezed. And so with that in mind, and with that in mind, front and central, let's now consider the responsibilities of wives as they come first. So wives are called to, are called, please don't miss that. Wives are called to submit to their husbands as they do to Christ. Let's back up for a moment. Although it's connected, but we need to back up for a moment. We need to go to verse 21. I read earlier from the ESV, I'm not sure how many people use the ESV, but if you have an NIV or if you have a New Living Translation, you will note, for example, that when it comes to this section in your Bibles, verse 21 actually belongs to this next section. Whereas if you've got an ESV, for example, it belongs to the section beforehand. But it is really important to know that verse 21 is connected to, intimately connected to verse 22. In fact, the verb to submit does not appear in verse 22. It flows from verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. You see, as Christians, this, this is what submission means, by the way. So, so we just don't get confused on this. As Christians, we are to put others first before ourselves. We are, as we said last week, humbly to consider consider others better than, more important than ourselves. That's what it means to submit to one another. And as we said last week, this is also one of the means by which we are filled with the Holy Spirit. It's not just a result of being filled with the Holy Spirit as we were thinking about in the previous verses, but this is one of the means to be being filled by the Holy Spirit. When we submit to one another, we are being filled by the Holy Spirit. And this mutual submission to one another should define all relationships amongst Christ's followers. And note, what is the motivating factor? What is, why should we do this out of reverence for Christ? And therefore, not to live this way, not to submit, is disrespectful to Jesus. And so to submit in in our culture, in our context, in our thinking, might be viewed in a rather pejorative, disparaging way as a kind of sign of weakness or as something that you should avoid at all costs. But that is not what it means here in the biblical text. That's not what it means in a Christian worldview. What it means is to humbly put others first. Which you could argue is a sign of strength, not a sign of weakness. But alongside this, what it also has to do with is order. Proper, appropriate order, social ordering and structuring of people. And so in the midst of that general submission to one another as Christians, there are also specific ways that submission plays out in different contexts, one of which is marriage. 
where Paul differentiates the roles between husbands and wives in Christian marriage. And so the husband, according to verse 23, is the head of the wife. He has a leadership role. We'll come back to that if we have time. It's nearly gone already. We may not have time. No, we will have time. We'll come back. And therefore, wives are encouraged to submit to that leadership role. But note this, as they do to Jesus. As they do to Jesus. Submit to your husband as to the Lord, as you do to the Lord. And so if you rip this all back, do you know what it boils down to? This: If a wife is not submitted to Jesus, she will not be submitted to her husband. End off. End off. And so there's a real challenge here to all wives regarding their ultimate submission to Jesus. By the way, and I don't know if I've said this, but I know it's stating the obvious, this is not instructions to men and women. This is instructions to husbands and wives. Okay, just, I know you know that. It's really important to say that. Now, I do realize that when it comes to this idea of wives submitting to husbands, in this sense, putting others before yourselves, husband's head and his leadership role. I realize that this text and these specific verses have been abused and used as a weapon by some people to force subservience and obedience. And let's be clear about the word submit and submission as we tease this out more. And, and let's rule out what the text here in Ephesians 5 does not say. It does not call for obedience. Paul does not choose the word obey to characterize the wife's rule. So going back to the traditional wedding vows, they, do, they may need change. I'm in the process of changing them for next Saturday for that couple. Out of the back of what I've been thinking about this week. Because you see in the next section, if you read on end of chapter 6 of Ephesians 6, uh, or Ephesians 6 what does Paul say to kids? Children do what? Sorry? Obey your parents. But he, but he doesn't use the same word here. Really important we get this. It does not make the husband the boss and the wife of the servant. Or, or, or sorry, the wife the servant. This does not lead to the wife's loss of self and her identity. So as we, that is not what we mean by submit. Now the reason that obey is not the word used here is because the, sub, the word submission and the form of that word that is used here implies a voluntary choice on the wife's part to recognize this arrangement that God has designed. Voluntary choice to submit, to put another before yourself first, as all Christians are instructed to do. And back to what I said and highlighted earlier, the basis for Paul's instruction is always rooted in Jesus and in the relationship of the church to Jesus. And so in verse 23, it doesn't just say, for the husband is the head of the wife, full stop, although that is often where people put the full stop in that sentence. It continues, as Christ is the head of the church, his body. So Jesus is our head. 
And we are called to submit to his leadership, to his headship, which is, of course, something we voluntarily do and want to do because of who Jesus is and because of all that Jesus has done for us. Jesus doesn't force us to submit. He invites us to submit ourselves. And that voluntary submission of the church to Christ's leadership is what should then motivate and inform how a wife submits to the leadership of her husband. Which then kind of takes us, because we need to, again, this all flows there, but then kind of takes us to the specific responsibility and calling of husbands. The core instruction to the husband is, husbands, love your wives, beginning of verse 25. And then Paul gives us two models to inspire hearts and to set the standard of their love. But before we look at this, it is worth noting that this kind of injunction, this directive, this command, this never appears as part of a husband's duties in the Greek or Roman household codes. Never. Back in the first century context, when household codes were being drawn up in that society, husbands were never told to love their wives. And so Paul's extensive appeal to husbands to love their wives, something that he does three times in this text, not just once. It's there in verse 25, it's there in verse 28, it's there in verse 33. This would have stood out to his original and initial readers, even though at first glance, do you know something that's no big deal to us? Of course husbands should love their wives. But what should be a big deal to us is the standard of this love, the example that he sets. Because the first model he gives is, again, it's all about, it's about Jesus. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And there's no greater, there's no higher example of love than this, than being willing to lay down your life, to be willing to sacrifice everything for the benefit and the well-being of your wife. That is some calling. That is some standard. And obviously, if this is embraced, if this is lived out by each and every husband, then no wife is going to get hung up on voluntarily submitting to that kind of husband. And here again is where I think certain wedding vows need to be amended because when I use wedding vows or have done, what I have said to husbands is, husbands, will you love, comfort, honor, and protect? Again, I want to rewrite that. I want to say, husband-to-be, will you love as Christ loves the church? Honor, comfort, and protect. I want to bring balance to this. But just for a moment, let me also say that this standard, this high standard for husbands has actually been set for the entire church. For every single Christian in this room. You see in the second verse of chapter 5, if you've been tracking this series with us, what does it say? It says this, Christian, child of God, saint, chosen one, adopted one, God's workmanship, listen up. Live a life of love. All of us, live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So just as all Christians are called to mutual submission, all Christians are also called to mutual love. To this standard. Sacrificial love. And so the first model, says Paul, for husbands to love their wives is Jesus. Jesus. 
Second model is the care or the, is the love and care that husbands provide for their own bodies. Verse 28. Now, I know what some wives are thinking. If my husband loved me like he loves his body, I'm beat, right? But the point is that every man has this natural tendency, right? This is general, Paul talking generally, this natural tendency to pay attention to their bodies so that they feed it. They let it sleep. They provide shelter for it. They develop knowledge and skills. They exercise it. They treat its wounds if they are wounded, etc., etc. Husbands should carefully consider all the ways that they care for themselves and make sure that they provide the same level of care for their wives. That's what Paul's saying here. And Paul goes on to make the point that we men, we nourish and we cherish our bodies. And again, note the bigger picture here. It's all about Jesus. We cherish and nourish our bodies just as Christ does the church. And so husbands, you are to consider how does Jesus care for? How does Jesus nourish and cherish and provide for his church? That is the model I have got to take and use on how I nourish and care, provide for my wife. And again, I honestly believe that if a wife knows that her husband is looking to the example of Jesus and how he nourishes and how he cares for his body, then voluntary submission to that kind of husband is an easy call. Although, it's worth making the point that it does not say, wives, submit to your husbands if they love you in the same manner as Christ loves his church. Nor does it say, husbands, love your wives if they submit to you doesn't say that. These instructions are given as our proper obedience to God in the marriage structure as he has designed. Although, and there's so much in this, there are certain exceptions that surely must exist. So for example, if a husband leads his wife into disobedience or into immorality, or if a, way, or if a husband is abusive or if he is cruel, then ideas and concepts such as submission just go out the window. But let me go back as, as, as we kind of close this. Good sign. Let's go back to what it says about the husband as head. And I do, I do raise the time. Verse 23. The husband is head of the wife as Christ is head of the church. I fully appreciate this is controversial. But as I understand that the role function that this refers to is, as I've been saying all along, leadership. And therefore, the metaphor head refers to the distinct leadership function that husbands are called to fulfill. And what does, the, what does it mean to lead? What does it mean to be head? What is headship? What is leadership all about? It means to take a person by the hand and bring them along. That's what it means. Which contrasts sharply with this idea of boss or rule. But what is crucial here to understand again is, is how Paul does not appeal to the kind of culturally constructed idea of headship. He defines the husband's headship, the husband's leadership on the basis of Jesus and how Jesus serves in his head of the church. And although he doesn't unpack exactly what that means here in detail in chapter 5, he has in chapter 4 confirmed that Christ provides leadership for the church, provides direction for the church, provides all that the church needs. And so as head, Jesus also stands up against the enemies of the church by providing power and providing protection for his body, according to chapter 1, 22 and 23. And so in the same way, husbands, you have a responsibility as head, as leaders, to protect your wives. 
And, and ultimately, the principal vision for leadership that Jesus presents is what? Somebody tell me what is the principal vision for leadership that Jesus presents throughout his life in the Gospels. It's what kind of leadership? Servant leadership. And that is and always has been and always will be countercultural. Jesus modeled a caring and self-dying form of leadership that every husband must embrace as head. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Husbands, as head, lead like Jesus. Serve your wives and be willing to give your lives for them. Now, I know I know I have not covered every issue raised by this passage. I have not answered every question that we bring to this regarding marriage and the rules and and rules and responsibilities. But what I hope I have done this morning is helped us to catch a fresh glimpse of Jesus and to see how marriage points to the union, the closeness, the intimacy of Christ and the church, and also how that relationship then sets the pattern for husbands and wives, and how they do marriage, and how they understand, and how they carry out their respective roles. And so wives, submit to your husband as you do to Jesus. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Because this, this is your calling. 